also me too. It's just going to be you and I again this episode, I think. How are you? I'm good. We, we, we can continue to mislead people then now that we don't have any of our guests, and particularly on the topic that you plan to bring up for us today. Well, I did want to talk about uh, damages. Uh, and I, I guess one question I will have is whether we're talking about damages in all contracts cases or just damages in, in bond cases. But there was an issue that you and I have both been puzzling over that um, maybe I, I can set up with a, a little bit of background and then turn it over to you to explain what we are finding so puzzling and, and to, to give an example about. Does that sound like a reasonable way to do it? That's good. I'd be happy to reveal my confusion about this. <laughs> so, so as I, I hard to avoid generally. Well, you know, we're going to say it might not be that bad. We'll see how this goes. Um, but, but both of us are puzzled by something about the way we understand the law to be. So, so as I understand damages in bond oh. cases, so let's say I buy a, a, a bond issued by some risky government and, and you know, it's a, it, there's a reasonable chance that it's not going to be able to, to pay me. And so I get compensated for that default risk through a pretty high coupon payment. So let's say it's a, a 10 year bond. It's gonna, it's got a face value of a hundred bucks and uh, it's yearly coupon is maybe $10. Whereas a, you know, a risk-free comparable US treasury would be at, you know, a dollar coupon. Uh, let's, let's just use those round numbers to, to illustrate. So I get paid for a while, but then, you know, the time comes maybe in year six for the, the issuer to make the next coupon payment and it defaults. So here's the beginning of the, the puzzle. As I understand my right to damages, I'm going to get, you know, 10 bucks for the missed coupon payments, the remaining coupon payments, plus, you know, the, the $100 face value of the bond. And, and that's going to be my, my remedy, the, the payments that I'm not going to receive because of the default. And so the puzzle, I think, is why is that the remedy? So, so my explanation of the law is a bit oversimplified. I think many of our, our listeners will, will claim because it doesn't take into account the right to accelerate the bond. But that, that's a, a, for, for the subset of people who don't know, that's my right on default to demand, to demand immediate payment of the bond's principal and any accrued interest. But for our purposes, we can set acceleration to the side for now. Because um, for now, it's mostly a question of timing. And, and the important point is that the damages remedy, as I understand it at contract law, is going to compensate me for the full amount of the missed payments. So um, now we're kind of set up for the puzzle, which is why is that the rule? And, and I'm hoping you can explain why you find it puzzling that that would be the rule. Uh, and then maybe maybe there's an example that can help us think about this a, a bit more. Okay, so this, this has befuddled me for a long time. But uh, as I reveal our confusion, my confusion about this measurement of damages in what should be a very simple context, 
let me uh, provide a defense in advance of that confusion, which is that I think that contract scholars who spend a lot of their time studying damages remedies have been puzzled by this in almost the mirror opposite situation. So I think we're analyzing very much the same kind of case as they have been puzzled by it. And that uh, puzzle is, has to do with something called the lost profits versus market damages uh, puzzle. But let's uh, set that aside uh, to analyze uh, the question that you posed. Now, you posed it very nicely. The country borrows money. Let's say it's El Salvador. It borrows money and uh, it's a 10-year bond. And in year six, uh, for whatever reason, they stop paying. And then uh, the question is, uh, what are the damages? I think most people would reasonably say the damages are the amount that they didn't pay. So whatever coupon payments are remaining and the principal payment. Now at a first cut, I think that's right. But now let's, let's change the, the hypothetical a little bit different. Let's say that I buy this bond uh, from an investment house. I tell the investment house, uh, I want to buy El Salvador risk to put in my portfolio. And they say, sure, we bought you a bond uh, from El Salvador for 10 years, and that will satisfy your request to us. And now in year six, for whatever reason, it doesn't actually have to be a default. For whatever reason, that El Salvador bond disappears. It could be, for example, El Salvador decides that it wants to prepay or call the bond or something happens that that bond is no longer in my portfolio and the investment company is the one that owes me. Now, the, does the investment company have to pay me the remaining amounts? Uh, no, they don't. Actually, I, I think any contract student would say all that they have to do is replace that El Salvador risk with some equivalent risk. So maybe let's say a combination of Trinidad and Tobago, half a bond from Trinidad and Tobago and half a bond from Barbados would produce the equivalent risk for the remaining four years. Assuming that financially that's an identical asset as the El Salvador bond that had four years remaining, my damages are zero. So long as the investment company substitutes that equivalently equivalently risky asset no now if that is the case then i think the contract remedy that you posed at the start becomes puzzling because the remedy that you posed in effect was if at year six the instrument is no longer paying then you have to in effect replace it with the with a risk-free monetary value which overcompensates the investor dramatically and contract law does not like to overcompensate so that that's why i find this uh, the the assumption that if there is 
something goes wrong, let's say there's a breach in the contract for whatever reason, and I think we can go to the hypothetical where the breach in the contract is not just uh, a refusal to pay, but let's say the alteration of some other contract term. The intuitive remedy that most law students would give, and I think definitely most in investors would give, and certainly I would have given before we started thinking about this, I think might be just plain wrong. Well, so as I understand um, what you're saying, and as I have come to sort of think about this problem, the issue is that, so there are multiple ways we could characterize the right contract remedy. And all of them, we might try to defend as what contracts people would call the expect the expectation or expectancy interest. The, the amount of money you would need to make you um, put you in the position that you would have enjoyed if the contract had been performed in full. So my initial articulation of the remedy, which I think is is descriptively correct. I think uh, many, uh, many courts at least would say, yes, the remedy is the, the missing payments. There's an alternative way to think about what the remedy ought to be, and, and it's the one that you alluded to. It's the, I should get an amount of money that will allow me to buy a substitute for the thing that was promised me. And yeah, as I understand. So, I, I think this is, you said it, this is hard to explain, but I think you set it up well. The puzzle, and this is why, for those people who know about the lost profits puzzle, uh, and you know, if you're a law student or a legal academic, you probably know about the famous Tongish case uh, where this comes up. It is, this is an area in which the law arguably gives you two possible calculations, both of which could satisfy the idea of fulfilling your initial expectations from the contract, which is what damages are supposed to be. Am I, am I correct that in uh, understanding how you set it up, Mark? Yes, that, that's a, a very, a, a much more elegant way to put it. And I think the thing that we're struggling with is that one of them seems clearly overcompensatory. And that's the, the overcompensatory one seems to be the one that um, many people assume is the right remedy here. So just to, you referenced the damages remedy as treating me as if I had purchased a risk-free asset. And I just wanna to sort of emphasize that point. I've already, of course, been paid for taking on default risk. That's why I've been getting these $10 coupon payments rather than the $1 coupon payment that I would have had with a risk-free security. And if the law in effect guarantees me the, the $100, the full payment, isn't it giving me in effect a, a kind of credit default insurance that I didn't purchase? I've been collecting coupons uh, that have been appropriate for taking on default risk, and yet here I am insured from the risk of default by the damages remedy. So I, I think in some ways the sensible remedy would be to give me whatever amount of money I need to buy 
a comparable security to bring it back to your original example, right? I, I default in year five. Now I get a five-year comparable security, however much money I need for that. And, and I should be made whole, right? I think that's exactly right. But it's, it's not intuitively obvious because the, the standard articulation of the remedy is you have to make uh, the party against whom the breach occurred whole as if the contract were fully performed. And normally we think fully performed means you pay everything. So that pay everything sounds like give me all the money right away. It, whereas you're saying, no, the actual remedy, I guess you're saying, and I'm saying, I don't want to blame you. The actual remedy is compensate you at the risk level that you're at, at the point at which uh, this breach occurs, which give you two very, very different outcomes. And I think hopefully we can talk about this. Except that I, I have to interrupt because I, I think it has to be at the ex ante level of risk, because of course, the, that is the, the price that you paid was set by that level of risk. And we can't give you a credit, right? If you bought a BAA bond and it's now in the crapper, you should be entitled to a, a similar payment stream from a BAA bond, not uh, another issuer that's now in default, right? But that's so maybe not that's sure. I'm not sure actually. So, uh, but let, let's get back to this, but let, let me at least put on the table that I don't think that what you should get is the initial at issue level of risk. I think that if there is a market fluctuation and let's say El Salvador gets worse and worse over those six years and at year six, there is some breach. But I don't think that you're the letting, <laughs> we're getting, it's, we're getting unruly. You're unjustly <laughs> enriching the issuer because it was able to price the bond at its ex ante level of risk, but it only has to pay for some bond issued by a shitty country that matches its current level of risk. That but can't be the rule. Shitty. It's become shitty. So the equivalent of shitty country bond is shitty country bond, not to use our uh, esteemed president's uh, uh, language about countries. Uh, oh, did we, did we indirectly do that? Damn. No, no, I hope we didn't. I don't want anything to do with his language ever, ever, ever. Uh, but um, let, let's use some concrete examples. Uh, uh, and let's at least flag some concrete examples that I think are extremely important. And I also want to flag the question that in the sovereign debt literature, or maybe even in the bond literature, there's literally no discussion of how to measure damages. Maybe some bankruptcy scholars like Douglas Baird uh, talk about it, but for the most part, the discussion of damages is in sort of the apple seller or sunflower seller or oil seller context where you know, the market price changes along the way and the question is, uh, who gets the benefit of the adjustment in market prices? Now, I think our case is the flip side and understanding what the proper measure of damages is could help us a lot with respect to big questions that we have right now, such as what would the damages 
have to be if emerging market countries today reformed their contract terms to make them easier to restructure, uh, or let's say they reformed their contract terms uh, to put in COVID clauses, those would arguably be breaches of their contract uh, obligations. But then the question would be, what kinds of damages would they have to pay investors? Would they have to return the money right away? Or would there be an estimation of damages in a conventional damage measurement uh, method? And I at least think that if they put in place restructuring provisions or COVID clauses today, there's a pretty good argument that they would have to pay uh, near zero in damages. And just because, so now I'm really pushing it, just because nobody has thought about that question, we're not doing it. But maybe if people realized damages would be near zero, maybe we could put in place COVID clauses for all of these countries and be protected against uh, some really uh, dire events. Uh, I think we should probably take a break because I've said some truly outrageous things that I don't really believe myself. And now the break will help me think about how to escape the incorrect statements I've made. Mark, will you let us take a break now? Or this this seems reasonable. I have been I've been biting my tongue a little bit, so um, I can go get a bandage during our break. <laughs> okay, let's take a break now. So, Mitu, you were talking a little bit crazy there at the end. So, I just want to make some premises clear which is that we are in agreement, of course, that uh, a country that followed your suggestion would be in default. Otherwise, there would be no need to talk about damages. And I think we're- Wait, 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 wait. So can, let me give you a hypothetical. So I thought, you, can... I thought you did give me a hypothetical. No, but you, you sent them into default. So let's say that if we're, they're not in default, we, can, we don't need to talk about damages at all, do we? No, we, we do. We do. I th in fact, I think this is, this, is, uh, the, this is the crucial question. So we could even talk about the gold clause cases that we've discussed before uh, on, on our podcast. But let's, let's just take Greece in 2012. And... They, they never actually defaulted on their debt, at least not their uh, local law sovereign debt. Uh, instead, they put in place retroactively new contract provisions into their bonds. Uh, that never got analyzed as a pure contract question by the courts. But if it had been analyzed as a pure contract question, I think the courts would have said, yes, you breached the contract terms because you added new terms to your contracts. So you breached the contract terms, but you didn't stop paying. But, but they, you contract. paid an amount you were not entitled to pay. Right. right. And then you put in place a new contract term under which you renegotiated the old contract terms and create a new amount. Now, the question then is, what are the damages for putting in the new contract term? And if you analyze the question that way, 
I think that that really sharpens our analysis. Or the U.S. in 1933, they didn't default on their debt. They they just said we're not going to pay you in gold. They removed a contract term. So one thing I struggle with is I feel like you are maybe without saying it, you are inviting us to substitute the tort measure of damages for what is traditionally understood to be the contract measure of damages. So the tort measure is the correct measure here. <laughs> okay, so um, at least we are in agreement on that. Explain to me the response to the following argument. There has been a breach by and you're, you're narrowly defining the breach, but in reality, the breach, if the, um, this collective voting mechanism, it cannot permissibly be added to the contract. The breach consists not just of doing that, but in paying the lesser amount than it, that was agreed to only because of that clause, paying the lesser amount rather than the greater amount that I was promised. So, the question then is like, what do we need to give me to put me in the position I would have been in if you hadn't done these things? Right? So, correct, correct. So can I, can I uh, start? Please. Okay, so let's, let's go either to the US in 1933 or Greece in 2012, or you know, there's a famous uh, Ashbury Park versus uh, State of Virtute, New York, right? right? The, the, decision. In all of those cases, uh, you have the debtor is in deep financial trouble and is, is on the brink of default. And because they are governments, they are able to rewrite their contract terms and they rewrite the contract terms in a way in which it, it according to each of the courts that analyzed it, I think is fair to say, they improve the status of all of the creditors beyond what it would have been had they not been able to rewrite the contract terms. In each case, the government steps in and says, you know, this is a, a shit show uh, and our existing contracts are not going to work. We're gonna improve things for everybody. And now, the, the question is, what are the damages that investors uh, get to claim, given that things have actually been improved for them? It, from that perspective, investors shouldn't get to demand damages uh, as if they're getting paid. You know, in Greece, they don't get to have a U.S. Treasury. In fact, they should pay the issuer for, for having uh, rescued them. Now, I know no investor thinks that that is the situation. They all think that they deserve a U.S. Treasury, but it just doesn't make any uh, sense to me when I think of it from that perspective. I mean, investors in, in, in Greece in 2012 actually got overcompensated. And even though the court didn't analyze it as a contract damages case, ultimately they, they do deny the investors recovery on the ground that look, you actually, your value of your bonds actually increases. Now you so, tell me why I'm wrong. I, I don't think that you're wrong, but I think you are insisting on replacing the expectation measure of 
damages with something that looks more like a tort remedy. No, so, no, 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 it seems to me that the underlying premise of the argument that you just made is that after the contract, the promisor's circumstances deteriorated to the point where they simply were not going to be able to perform. And so rather than perform, which they could not do, they did something else, which was way less than they had promised to do but which, which was nevertheless better than whatever crappy effort they could make at the time to honor their promise. So I can't pay everybody in full as I promised. I can't pay you all your hundred bucks. And you know, it's possible that you, me too, would get nothing. Uh, maybe I'd pay other people. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna not pay anyone for a year. And then at the end of the year, I'll have enough money that I can pay you all $20. And you're, of course, if I had to pay you all whatever I have now, I'd only be able to pay you 10. So I'm going to wait a year. Your argument is that the damages measure should take into account that this alternative course of action is better than, in effect, total breach. That's just not normally how we think of contract damages. Your inability to perform doesn't wind up benefiting you when we compute the damages. Your strict liability, you said you were gonna do a thing, you can't do it, and so now we need to put people in the position they would have been in if you had kept your word. Oh, the way you put it, it just sounds like my perspective is completely wrong. All right, let me, let me try again to resuscitate my perspective, which I'm still convinced is right, although your articulation really just, it must be a horror to be in your class because you just destroy the hope of your students. That's why we're here. <laughs> but but like, think about it. So the, I think it's bullshit that contract damages really are strict liability. That's what we tell them, that's what we teach them. But in reality, there's just all sorts of fault-based analyses and mitigation and uh, constraints on foreseeable damages, all of, all of which end up giving you a system that is much closer to a negligence type system. So if you take into, in particular, mitigation, so the, the context in which all of these bond cases really come up is you have a collective, all of these bondholders who are part of the same bond, and a small subset of them who want a super compensatory remedy and are trying to get that super compensatory remedy by refusing to agree to what would be the rational result for the collective. They want extra compensation. And Aren't they, in a sense, refusing to mitigate damages by refusing to cooperate? And is, aren't in contract law, aren't you allowed to sort of uh, anticipatorily adjust for the failure to mitigate? This is an interesting question. And 
I think, um, though I'm very sympathetic to it, I think it would be easy to characterize what you just said as advocating for something like an intercreditor duty of good faith. So I don't, but do we need to is this, the hold on, let me, let me, let me, let me finish. I, I'm the, sounding like Mike Pence. How do, ooh, how do you, um, it is one thing to act to reduce your harm, right? It is another thing to voluntarily agree to accept greater harm so that other people won't be treated worse than you. You're advocating for the latter, which is maybe a good rule, but not traditionally what we would expect from people under the duty to mitigate, is it? No, I, I think you're right. I think this is the reason why court after court after court, when they're faced with this question, don't analyze it as a damages question. Instead, they analyze it as a contract question. So if you look at the gold clause case, uh, or you look at Fetut, or you look at the Greek case, or even in the corporate context, look at cases like Katz versus Oak Industries, the courts don't allow the misbehaving creditor to get their disproportionate recovery. Of course, we all know cases where they do allow that, uh, but they do it through contract law doctrine as opposed to looking at the damages. So they generally, if I remember correctly, they just say there's no breach, or even if there is a breach, uh, they, they figure out some devious method to get around it as in the gold clause cases. But I do wonder whether if they faced up to the damages question, we would not, we would perhaps get a more elegant solution, but you are persuading me that that's not easy to get to. I do wonder also about the whether acceleration rights change things rather dramatically. So the, the point that I am most comfortable with is the point that the standard remedy uh, in cases of non-payment, see, it strikes me as overcompensatory, at least if it gives the full amount of the promised payment to the investor. Uh, and I think you and I, though we disagree on a bunch of aspects of our discussion today, I think we at least have a, a core agreement on that. But let me, let me kind of push on that and see if we really agree. Uh, even on on that limited proposition. So in a bond that's issued um, under foreign law, so the government has no power at all to, to change the law governing the instrument, a pretty common feature of those bonds would be a clause that says, look, if there's been a default, then I, the issuer, have the right to declare the principal to be immediately due and payable to me. So in effect, it's a sort of state contingent contract where I, the investor, get to elect between two different performances 
uh, in the event of, of a default like this, and I elect immediate payment, and you promise me that you will pay me $100 on my demand. If we assume that the, exer the, the investor has and exercises that right, me too, does our argument go away? It's impossible to substitute for the a promise to immediately pay a hundred dollars other than by awarding a hundred dollars, isn't it? Uh, this is this gets it even more complicated. This is why, you know, thinking about those Greek bonds in 2012 or the US gold clause cases, gold clause bonds in 1933 is a good starting point because I don't think either of them had acceleration provisions. As I understand your question, that it's basically saying if there is an acceleration provision, which is in some ways a part of the damages remedy, does this eliminate that discussion? And I'm not sure. I mean, this we saw this in the NML case versus the NML v. Argentina infamous case where there was an argument about whether or not the acceleration provision was the damage remedy for contractual breach of any of the terms. And I, I think that the court said no, or it just didn't address that question uh, by saying no, in this case, we're giving an equitable remedy because the circumstances are, are so unusual. But my instinct is to say that acceleration does not change things. So let's go back to our original example of the El Salvador bond. And you have El Salvador at year one that is, let's say, B plus, and then uh, declines by year six to C minus. And then the investment company needs to replace the bond because something happens, the bond gets has to be removed. I don't think acceleration would make any difference. They would just replace you with a Barbados uh, plus Trinidad bond that was equivalent in risk, C minus, I think. Uh, but I know you disagree on that one. A and they would have acceleration provisions as well. But um, it it's, again, I don't think that the presence of the acceleration clause uh, changes this, but I'm unsure. I'm well, unsure. I, th I think that I agree with you. Um, and as you know, I, I find this easier to think about in the context of a payment default. But even in that context, although I have the right to demand immediate payment of $100, it is still the case that I purchased an instrument where the probability of being repaid in full was highly uncertain. And I was compensated for taking on a, a significant risk of non-payment. And yet awarding me damages of $100 is in effect to insure me against the risk that I was not just willing to take on, but in fact paid to take on. And it strikes me that if nothing else, there is an argument that doing that is significantly overcompensatory. But I, I too find this this very confusing and very hard to puzzle through. Yeah, but it's it it is important 
for us, not just the two of us, although I think this means that we're going to have to write an article about this, uh, maybe after consulting our dear friend Bob Scott uh, about who can, who how to clarify immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did, I did ask him about this, and he, he did say two things. One, that it was the mirror opposite of the lost profits market price puzzle in Tongish. And two, that there is a very strong disagreement in the contracts field about which measure is the correct measure. And uh, I think there are people continuing to write articles about the puzzle as to which measure is correct. There are cases that come out either way. And so that, that gives me hope that even if this is the rare case where I have the mirror opposite view of someone like you, although I, I think we don't actually have mirror opposites view, even if they're not uh, identical, uh, that, that there is hope that we can at least have a possibility of getting to the right outcome. I also think it's really important in the current situation, lots of countries have inefficient contract terms. And as you know, uh, I think that our prospects for the future are bleak and we need them to have better contract terms. So the question of can we fix their contract terms without having to pay full compensation seems very it's relevant. really crucial. Me. There's, there's no question about that. I do think that just maybe by way of, of closing, that there is a reason why the challenges that you've mentioned to the Greek restructuring, to the U.S. default uh, uh, on its gold clause bonds, um, there's a reason why these have been framed more or less as torts cases. And it's because in all of these instances, the bond was governed by the issuing country's law. And so it can kind of say that its contract law is whatever it is, um, and it can more or less do what it wants. So they all wound up being takings cases uh, in one form or another, which um, allowed maybe the remedial flexibility that the court needed to reach a, a sensible sort of just outcome. So part of what I guess we're wondering is whether contract law is itself flexi flexible enough in its understanding of remedies to, to um, do the same thing. And since I generally believe that the law doesn't dictate really any outcome, uh, my sense is that it probably does have that flexibility. But All right. Well, that, we'll that's an that, I like that very optimistic note. And maybe we'll make uh, our friends Bob Scott and Dave Hoffman and Tess Wilkinson Ryan and other contract gurus listen to our podcast and uh, give us the answer. Then we'll write it up in a very famous <laughs> new article. This sounds, I like the way you're thinking. This sounds perfect to me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, me too. See you soon. Mm -hmm.